Hello, this is Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring creativity in all its diverse forms. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. Today, we have a special edition of the podcast recorded on location in Foy in Cornwall, where I've been spending a week on holiday after months in lockdown. It was recorded on the terrace of the Foy Hall Hotel, so you will hear some background hotel noises, people walking by, voices from nearby tables, and some very persistent seagulls. I hope that doesn't detract from your enjoyment of my creative conversation with Lynn Gould, Chair of the Foy Festival. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Creative Conversations. Lynn Gould, Chair of the Foy Festival. Thank you very much for asking me. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you on such a gorgeous morning. And it is a beautiful sunny day with clear blue skies and we're sitting here on the terrace of the Foy Hall Hotel with this spectacular view. Um, Lynn Gould, would you um, describe for our listeners so that they can share this wonderful day with us what it looks like from here? I can and I'd love to share it with you. Um, Foy is, is a magical place. And Foy, you might not know, um, it's got a strange spelling. It's spelled F-O-W-E-Y. And uh, it doesn't sound, doesn't look like uh, you pronounce it as Foy, but we rhyme it with joy. And what we're looking at is we're looking out from the mouth of the river at the English Channel. And it's a beautiful dark blue uh, sea, which is very calm out there with one or two boats bobbing up and down. And we're looking across to the other side of the river, um, which is Polruan. Now, Polruan is a small village, um, has a population around eight to 900 people, um, and it's not just in the village, it's in the hinterland as well. Um, and it's a very attractive little village with a very busy boat yard there. So that's, um, we're just sitting fairly at the top of Foy, looking down on the river as well and over to Polruan. So it is a magical view. It's wonderful, and here up in the Foy Hall Hotel, it's um, it's like a big mansion um, with um, sort of manicured lawns, and I do feel very um, sort of like Lord of the Manor, looking looking down. <laughs> well, well, you should do because um, Foy Hall was built in the 1890s as a grand sort of Gothic mansion, and it was built for Sir Charles Hanson, and he was uh, a Cornishman who made his money in Canada. And he came back to this country and he was Lord Mayor of London. And this was the house that he built. So, yes, you should describe it as a mansion. Today it's a, a lovely family luxury hotel. Fantastic. And you'll, you'll probably hear a little bit of noise, the seagulls, um, and also a little bit of rumbling. Um, and that is actually the sound of the boatyard, I believe. Yes, it's the largest boatyard on the river here, um, based in Polruan. It um, builds new fishing boats, so some of the sound you'll hear is welding um, and some of it is cleaning the boats off. So they're building new fishing boats and repairing old ones, so it's a busy yard. And you have a personal connection uh, with the yard, is that right? Yes, my daughter's married to the son of the family that own, own it. Oh, yes. fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. So can you tell us something more about the town of Foy? We've talked about Paul Room, um, and Foy, for, for our list, international listeners who may not know where it is and, and, and what's the history of Foy and that sort of thing. Okay, well, Foy's on the south coast of Cornwall. Um, you've probably heard of its more... Um, notable neighbours, I will say, uh, Lou and Mevagissi. So we're in between Lou and Mevagissi. 
Um, it's not on the coast, it's on the mouth of the river, so there's a, there's a slight difference there if you get that. But Foy is a larger population. We've got a population of about just under 3,000 at present. So it is, is a bigger a town, and it is a town by its own right. It's sort of Its origins here are very much in the shipbuilding and seafaring. Um, we aren't really a fishing port. Lots of people think we are a fishing port like Lou and Mevagissi, but we're not. It's very much um, to do with shipbuilding and seafaring. At one time, we had something like nine working boat yards on the river. Today, we've only got three or four, and of course, the largest one is Tom's Yard, which I've just spoken about. Um, and we have an industrial port here. Now, the industrial port is, is interesting because it's tucked round a natural bend in the river. So it's just tucked away from the entrance to the harbour, so you can't actually see it. But um, that welcomes ships from all over the world uh, to collect China clay. Now, China clay, um, I don't know whether you're familiar with China clay, uh, China clay is also known in other parts of the world as kaolin. It's a white powder that comes from um, decomposed granite. And it's used, um, it was originally used in the ceramic industry. It went on to be used in the paper making industry. And it's still used in all those today. But paper making, obviously, it's changed um, with the digital age. And so now a lot of the china clay uh, is used in sanitary wear, so baths and shower uh, um, basins and things like that. But China clay is um, or was the main export from here for about a hundred years and the China clay industry started really very small in the late 1700s and then went on getting bigger and bigger and I suppose it was at its peak around the late 1970s um, in Cornwall and of course Foy became the um, main port for exporting and it was the main port for exporting china clay and china clay goes all over the world and of course paper making industries you think of places like germany finland scandinavia russia it goes to all those places um, today some of it goes to turkey for the sanitary wear but um, china clay was really important and what a sight to see a large ship coming in through this very narrow entrance to the harbour um, and I should say that we are the deepest water port between Falmouth, which is about 30 miles along the coast, and Southampton, which is about 200 miles along the coast. So it's an important port. Um, and I suppose when China Clay was at its peak, we'd have probably had something like 20 boats in here at a time. Um, and sometimes they would take a week to load. Um, because they'd be waiting for a berth at the, at the jetties, they'd then load up and they'd provision up the ships, and then they'd actually leave the port. Today things have changed, mechanisation, other areas where it's cheaper to get china clay. We probably have two or three ships a week these days, so quite a difference. But um, Foy's had to evolve, it's had to change, and of course... Um, the industry that tops it today is tourism and we have something like 700 visiting yachts a year to the harbour and the reason yachtsmen like it is because it's a very natural harbour it doesn't have a marina 
so it's a natural harbour um, and they love it like that um, so we have about 700 visiting yachts we have been having cruise liners in here but of course at the moment because of the pandemic there's no cruise liners so that's all changed but we still have two or three ships a week in so um, yes nice to see and what an excitement when you see um, this ship coming through almost like the eye of a needle especially something like a really big one and I don't know whether your listeners are familiar with a ship called the world it's a very large cruise liner which is divided into apartments and they're leased and they travel it's like a traveling village basically but it almost dwarfs the hills in Paul Ruin and it's come and if you're sitting up here you're sort of you're not eye level with the top of it but you're looking at the top of it and it's quite amazing to see it. It it conjures up a lovely picture. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, particularly for a landlubber like me to yes. hear about the history of Foy and the, the connection with, yeah. with um, a different kind of maritime history because one is, as you said, sort of we, we imagine Cornwall to be mainly fishing. So yeah. it's fascinating to hear about the, the, the clay mining um, and, 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 um, and, and the big boats. Um, now, you... Um, are very knowledgeable about the history of Ford because you have uh, you, you've been living here all your life. Yes, um, I've I've lived here for most of my life. I have spent time away, um, but I came back here when I was in my sort of mid twenties. Um, I've always loved the place. I've always loved walking here, and I've always had a passion for it. And even when I was away, um, I used to go and have to go and look at the Thames in London because I missed the water. <laughs> Um, so I was delighted when um, my husband was happy for us to move back down here and it, it worked out well for us. But um, I've developed a career here too. I changed um, from what I had been doing and I took on running the Tourist Information Centre in Foy and I ran that for 30 years. And during that time I trained as a Blue Badge Tourist Guide and I have for the last 25 years been taking people out for walks around the area, so I've had the most wonderful time. Wonderful. But you can't uh, call yourself Cornish properly No, because I wasn't born here, and I think that's fair. You know, um, the Cornish are a very proud nation, and that's how it should be. And so what's the qualification to call yourself Cornish? I think it's you have to have three generations. So your grandchildren hopefully will be? Possibly, yes. Yes, because certainly on one side they're they're both very Cornish, which is great. And my daughter and two of my grandsons were born here. Wonderful. Now, Foy has a connection with Daphne du Maurier, and this is where I get personally excited. Um, uh, because as a child in Malaysia, I read uh, Rebecca, um, and and then I, just, I I was just so blown away by this amazing, mysterious, um, tense, dramatic book. I read all of Daphne du Maurier, um, and I had always wanted to come to Cornwall to see, you know, the, the landscape of her writing. And when I was about thirteen or fourteen, I found her address um, in the Who's Who in my school library, and I wrote to her just on the off chance. And to my great surprise. The lovely, lovely lady wrote back to me, um, and I think I told her, um, you know, I wanted to be a writer and everything, and she wrote back, and it was a handwritten letter that just encouraged me to follow my dreams, and I was so touched and and so inspired, Um, and so it's a great excitement for me to to be here. Um, So could you tell us about the connection with the writer, Daphne du Maurier? Yes, certainly. That's a lovely story. I hope you've still got that letter. It's there somewhere. (laughs) Ah, oh, you need to treasure it. Yes. It's, it's, it's very important. Um, yes, Daphne, Daphne had been abroad. She'd been to finishing school. 
and I think at the time, the, her father had sold the family name. Uh, he'd sold the name Du Maurier to a cigarette company. <laughs> How do you do that? He was Gerald Du Maurier. He was an actor, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was the actor manager at Wyndham's Theatre in London, and he sold the family name to a cigarette company. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it's similar to endorsing a, a, um, a product today, isn't it? Um, but that actually gave the family a little bit of money to buy a holiday home. Now, I know that they'd been down to Cornwall when Daphne was younger on holiday, and so they decided to come down here to have a look. And uh, Daphne's mother came with the girls in a hired car, and they stayed the night in Loo. And the story goes that they didn't find anything suitable. So the next day they drove from Loo to Badinic, which is a little bit further upriver, but on the other side, same side as Polruan. And it's a wonderful drive through a patchwork of beautiful fields, and it looks across to the moors one way and across to the sea the other way. And as they came down the hill um, into Badinic to the ferry slip, they could see the whole expanse of the mouth of the River Foy, with Foy on the right-hand side and Polruan on the left and uh, the mouth of the river out towards them. And I think it's at that moment that she probably fell in love with it. And in front of them was a boatyard. Now, this was the 1920s, and, of course, this is the time of the Great Recession, so things were really difficult. And, of course, boat building was undergoing huge changes because small yards building wooden-hulled ships were no longer applicable, um, so they were changing. So these yards were going out of business. And this boatyard on the slipway next to um, the Badinic Ferry was up for sale, and that's the house her father bought, and he converted it into a holiday home. And Daphne was allowed to stay there. And uh, that's not quite true, actually, because she had to stay with a housekeeper on the other side of the road. She was considered too young to stay in the house on her own. But she did use the house, and she used it as her writing um, position, I suppose. And it's from there that she wrote her first novel, The Loving Spirit. And she became passionate about this area. She loved the country life. She liked fishing. Uh, she was taught to swim. She was taught to sail, um, and she just loved the country life here. So it was very important to her. And I think that changed her. And, of course, from then on, she kept coming back until in 1942 she actually managed to stay here for good. And so the house, um, uh, Menabilly, yes. it's a private house now? Yes, all the houses that she's lived in are privately owned, uh, not open to the public. But Menabilly became her passion. Um, in between, there's a really crucial period from the mid 1920s to about 1932 when she was married. And lots of things happened in that time that were actually to make a difference to what she wrote about later on. So it was a crucial period uh, for her. Now, Menabilly, um, she first found Menabilly because she would row across from Badinic to Foy and then she would go walking on the cliffs. Now, in this period, in the late 1920s, 
there wasn't a coastal footpath because we have this wonderful long coastal footpath from Minehead right the way through South, South Devon and on, onwards, um, which is about 600 miles long and four years on part of that. But at this particular time, it was still fields. And she would actually go out there and walk and she went through the woods and one morning she could see this lovely manor house and I believe at the time it was empty because um, the incumbent was working away and she fell in love with it and she became passionate about it she decided that was the house that she wanted and uh, she wrote and she asked if they could lease it if she could live in it and it was always no. And this is in the late 1920s. And by 1942, of course, we're now into the 1939-1945 war. Daphne came back to Cornwall to stay at Ferryside with her sister. And to stay there, and Daphne was with her children. Her husband was uh, still in, uh, away at war, and it was considered safer for her to come back here. And she actually moved from Ferryside to another little cottage down on the beach, which is the beach in Foy called Ready Money, lovely name. <laughs> um, and it's just behind the beach. She stayed there for about nine to 12 months, something like that. And somebody said to her, try writing to Menabilly again. And she did, and she was given a lease for as long as the Rashley family didn't require it and of course the Rash that was a Rashley family house since the 1500s so that was quite a thing for her to get. What an achievement so in, in, in a way it's a persistence pays off. I think so yes <laughs> it, was a, it was a long awaited um, passion but uh, she stayed there for about 17 years and she was passionate about it. Uh, there's a piece she writes somewhere and I think she says um, I do believe I love men more than I love people. Um, and um, the Menabilly inspired the, her, her book Rebecca, uh, I, I seem to remember, because yes. uh, her opening line of uh, Rebecca is Last Night I Dreamt of Mandalay. And that is, um, uh, it, it's the fictionalised version of, yes. of Menabilly. But she wasn't living in it when she wrote it. Ah. Um, she was actually living in Egypt when she wrote it because she was with her husband during the 1939-1945 war and the beginnings of Rebecca were written there and she was dreaming of that house that she'd seen and still longing to stay in it. Oh, so she hadn't lived in it, so it was, it was a wish fulfilment. Exactly. Oh, wonderful. Yes. I hadn't realised that. And I think that's what's so fascinating about uh, her works is that so many things that she writes about either have happened to her or happened to her later on. There's a real personal... I feel there's a real personal involvement. That's wonderful. Um, and so, now, the Foy Festival is connected with the Daphne du Maurier Society, is that right? Yes. I mean, it was actually originally called the du Maurier Festival of Arts and Literature. And it was set up... Um, the first one was held in 1997, um, to celebrate Daphne's 90th anniversary. <laughs> well, she wasn't alive, but it was to celebrate her 90th um, anniversary. And so your connection with the Foy Festival, you're the chair. Have you been involved with the Foy Festival for, for a while? Um, since the beginning, and probably before the beginning. Because in 1989, when Daphne died, 
I was running the Tourist Information Centre in Foy. And after her death, we were asked lots of questions. Before that, we used to pass them on to Menabilly. And Daphne, as you said, she was really good about replying to them. And suddenly I realised that I needed to know a little bit more, so I did some more research. And I suddenly realised that the places I worked, uh, I walked when I was a youngster was suitable for interpreting the walks um, or interpreting her novels. And so I started doing a walk on Daphne du Maurier. Um, I then went on to train as a guide and during that time I met a lady by the name of Dr Ella Westland who was um, uh, teaching literature at Exeter University and she and I became very friendly and she was passionate about Daphne as well and it got to us um, doing a day's event and this was very pertinent at the time because the councils were trying to encourage tourism and so they were trying to encourage event-led tourism. This was the beginning of it, really. And so um, I would do a walk in the morning. We'd go somewhere for a nice lunch, somewhere like Foy Hall. And then in the afternoon, Ella would give everybody a talk on how the writing comes about and the essence of place. And it worked very well. And then Ella suggested that uh, we had a conference and Ella actually set up a very successful weekend conference discussing Daphne du Maurier on her works. And in wanting some funding for that, Ella actually went to the local council, which was the borough council at the time called Restormal. And um, the gentleman she saw said to her, we've been wanting to hold an arts and literature festival on the south coast. Um, perhaps we could work together. And so the council actually took it on and the first festival was actually very pertinent. It was held on the lawns just across to our left-hand side. Had a huge marquee. It ruined the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we had a 400-seat theatre there in a huge marquee. A 10-day festival. But it also included lots of local events, so every village in the area, so Polruan, Tawadreth, um, all the surrounding villages, Loswithiel, all put on sort of some events of their own. And I and my colleagues, I trained with about seven or eight other guides at the time, we put on a series of guided walks to do with Daphne du Maurier, and that was really the beginning of it. And it carried on being the du Maurier Festival, um, until about five or six years ago when we lost all our funding oh. and or we were about to lose all our funding and it was suggested that we could have some funding if we changed the name because more people would Google Foy than they would Google Daphne du Maurier. So at that point we changed it to the Foy Festival but we set up a society called the Daphne du Maurier Festival Society so we just present the Foy Festival. So the origins are still there. And I think was, there is a little bit of sadness here because we're in 2020 and we haven't had a festival this year because of the coronavirus. And 2021 would have been our 25th festival. 
well, now we haven't had one this year. It'll be our 24th, won't it? Oh, no, no, no. We, we must make sure that it happens as yes. the 25th. So what I love about that story is that it started with two enthusiasts, yourself um, and, and Ella, um, and a small group of people getting together, being excited about Daphne de Moria and wanting to do something. And, um, the, and this is how, I think, for, for our listeners, sometimes we think, oh, the Foy Festival or the This Festival or This Event, it's, it's an established thing. Um, and um, what I love about the story is how from small, something small, a small idea, uh, you try something, you have a little conference and it becomes bigger and bigger. People are inspired by what you've done and it becomes a bigger thing and in fact a, a sort of legacy that for Daphne de Moria and, and for yourself and your, your team of, of, of friends and colleagues um, who live around Foy to, to leave something um, that will hopefully go on to future generations, which is this ongoing festival. Well, well we hope so. Um, I have to say it hasn't been without its ups and downs. I'm sure it must be very hard work. Because um, when we started, it was under the control of the Borough Council and there was European funding and um, eventually we moved from here to um, the other side of the hotel. The grounds next to it are the cricket grounds for the community college, uh, as it was then, which is now Foy River Academy, which is the school. And there, um, after the first year, we were able to set up a huge tented festival village which had a 600-seat theatre and a 100-seat theatre. And, yes, absolutely wow, when you consider the size of the population. And we had a 10-day festival with activities going on all the time, and we attracted people from all over the world. Um, And we've had some really interesting uh, people come along and speak, and um, we'd have lots of literary and art events during the day, and in the evening, we'd let our hair down with some really good music, you know. Um, and we've had some really good bands here, you know, some famous names. Um, and so it really was special. By the time we get to about uh, the end of the... about 2010 or just before, um, things started looking a little bit difficult. And, of course, councils were suddenly aware of what they were spending their money on. And things became very difficult. And it was about five or six years ago that we were asked um, if the town wanted to take it on. So there was a collaboration between Foy Town Council and what was then Foy Chamber of Commerce. And we took it on between us and did all the work between us and outsourced the printing to a local printer and things like that. We did all the um, uh, compositing of the programme. So that was all done, and we only had a few hundred pounds in the bank. I mean, it was nail-biting. But not only that, we had to do away with this wonderful festival village, because it cost over £100,000. It cost more like £150,000 just to set it all up. And no way had we got that sort of money that we could invest in it at all. And so we went to using local venues like the town hall which seats about 90 and the church which seats about 300 and we cut it down to about seven or eight days just to make it manageable and of course we had to have uh, slightly different events because of the size of the uh, venues.
But again, it's a story of persistence. I'm, I'm thinking again of yeah. Daphne du Maurier writing and writing yeah. um, to, to get Manabili. And here you, you all are, um, because the, of the passion and the desire to make it happen, regardless of the difficulties with funding, you guys got it together and, and through persistence kept Foy Festival going. Well, it is persistence because um, all our trustees are volunteers, um, all our front of house we have a wonderful group of festival volunteers who we call festival makers. Lovely. Um, and uh, they are wonderful. They look after all the front of house for us, do all that sort of thing. Um, and we just employ our festival... Well, we don't employ her, we contract her. Our festival director who arranges all the acts and that sort of thing. But it's all done locally and we work with the hotels, so... We will have some sort of intimate events with like 30 people and a book reading, which is really nice, and we'll have it in uh, the rooms here or there's another hotel in Foy as well that uh, we use. So, yes, it's very much... And it's taken a while to settle down because it was so different. And, of course, the people that were really um, passionate about it um, weren't quite sure. It wasn't the same. But, you know, after a year or two they realised that they were having something very special because it was it was a bit more personal, it was a bit more intimate. Um, yes, and we have a very dedicated uh, lot of followers. But this year is, is hard, not being able to put on the festival. So it was meant to be on in May. That's right. Um, and it looks like it's going to go on in September, is that the hope? Um, sadly, no. Oh, no. Oh, yes. We actually... Um, we opened the box office on the 8th of March. <laughs> Lockdown came about the 23rd oh, yes. of March, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> so we had about two weeks of ticket sales and then suddenly realised that it wasn't going to happen. And our festival director very fortunately found that there was a week's gap at the end of September, beginning of October, where there wasn't another festival. So she contacted all the performers that were due to come in May and I think all but three or four were able to come in September. So we rescheduled the festival to September, thinking then, oh, it'll all be gone by then. But of course, times have changed, um, much has changed, and only in the last two weeks have we decided that it's not viable because we still don't know at this stage whether we can use the church because of how many people you can have in a... a um, auditorium uh, we don't know how many people would come and of course that has an impact on our finances because if we don't make the money this year we can't put on next year's so we decided to sacrifice this year's very sadly to actually not put on September and I think even looking at the news since we've made that decision it was the right one because I don't think we'd be able to put it on um, in any case uh, from the way it looks. And so we are desperately trying to get hope that we can put on May 2021. Oh, that's a shame. But It is a shame. But roll on May 2021. Yes. And all things being equal, the plan was always that we'd have a series of pop-up events during the winter and early spring. You know, just one-off events. Uh, just as fundraisers. So hopefully we should be able to go into that gear 
when we're able to, but at the moment, until they can say how many people can meet in an auditorium, it's going to be very difficult. Yes, and I think this is an issue not just obviously yes. for FOI, but for all kinds of festivals and mm. all kinds of arts and culture yes. events. Um, you know, there are concerns uh, across the UK regarding having too many visitors, having too many people, you know, in in in, a, in, in, in the regions during the COVID crisis. Um, what is, what, what's the position, do you think, of FOI generally about visitors during COVID and, and how does that affect things, you know, for the festival and, and, and for the future? Foy relies on its tourism because, in fact, we've just gone through winter and winter isn't an easy time for the businesses in the town. And suddenly we have another winter which lasts three months. Um, it is important that we have tourists here um, and we welcome them all the time. But I think it was the difference. I think there's been a lot of discussion about this. And my feeling, and this is my personal feeling, that the difference is that we've gone to, it's all or nothing. You know, we haven't had a gentle increase. Um, and I can understand that from the economic point of view. But yes, um, but I think there's a, a section of people, especially our festival goers who are um, predominantly over 50, um, and some of them older than that, um, there's a reluctance to sort of move around still. And I think there will be for a little while. So this is why we were concerned about not getting the audience in September. Um, but yes, we do need people here and we do need people to come here. And I think it's, it's just that it was nothing and then everything. And I think... You know, as a business, you've got to change the way you work um, and how you deal with your customers. And, of course, the town's so narrow. It's really hard to social distance. It makes it very difficult. Um, so it has its problems. But, uh, yes, we're looking forward to actually being able to welcome people more widely in a less oh, restricted manner in the future. I think it's something that we aspire to. Yes, yeah. and I think it's also, it's, it's beyond FOI, it's, it's a, I feel it's a society thing, that we're going to be learning new ways of being that still allow us to, you know, humans are social, and so that allow us to be sociable um, and social, um, and uh, I've been staying in Paul Ruin and visiting FOI over the last few days on holiday, and I notice a lot of shops um, say, if you come in, um, you must wear a mask, um, and, you know, two, two customers or four customers, depending on the size of the shop at a time um, and, and I've been back and forth on the on the ferry between Paul Ruin and Foy and they ask you to put on a mask and um, so things like that we're, we're going to get used to and I think it's it becomes a common etiquette um, you know um, back in the days of you know when people used to spit um, but particularly in, in, in Asia, um, you, you sort of then learn actually no spitting. Um, and then, of course, in, in, uh, in certain countries, there's a sort of enforcement of no spitting. And so now we're seeing globally, you know, no, um, I don't know, no, no, no service, no, no mask, no service or, or, or whatever. Um, and when, when you and I met uh, just prior to this, to, to, to this recording, um, 
our automatic instinct was to shake hands, um, but um, you know we sort of bowed and did namaste, <laughs> which was kind of from a different culture. But it, it was a nice greeting because otherwise it feels weird if we don't do those social, you know, the, the, those little social etiquette things. Um, so I, I, I do hope very much that we'll all settle into a way of being that will allow festivals, foy festival, and, and other things to to go on without too much um, risk and danger um, and while respecting each other. I think you're right and I think, I think the problem is that there's always this mantra when we get back to normal what is normal mm. and uh, this will be the new normal that we get back to and it's actually a different way of doing things. Um, just on a very personal note I have a a very difficult situation. I have two daughters and four grandchildren, each having two children. I'm in a bubble with one of them because she lives closest. So I can cuddle those two grandchildren, but I can't cuddle the other two. Oh, that's awful. So when they're all together, two of them seeing me cuddle two of them and the other one have to other ones have to social distance from me. So it is difficult. You know, it does cause its problems. But you have to learn, I think we all have to learn, that things will be different um, and that we have to accept that. And, I mean, that's what life is all about. I, I, my feeling is that we've been running too hard for too long and that we all need to slow down a bit. And I think I was telling you before we started, um, I've enjoyed the quiet and... The not being rushed to do things during lockdown, I, I have actually enjoyed that. Um, I'm beginning to feel now I'd like a little bit of, um, you know, excitement in my life. <laughs> but, you know, a few months without it. But then if you think about it, how lucky am I living in a beautiful place like this and I have a lovely garden and how sorry I feel for people living in a high-rise flats with no outside um, in very confined conditions so I can understand those people wanting to share what we have here yes of you course. know and and we must be sympathetic to that mm. really must be sympathetic to that. so go, going back to the Foy Festival um, why is it important to keep it going it's actually important to keep it going because it was actually it was really crucial when it was set up it was set up to coincide with Daphne's birthday, which is May the 13th. But that is between two bank holidays in a school time. So it actually was targeting a specific market. It was targeting those without children to come and fill a gap. And of course, when it started in 1997, we just, over the previous 10, 15 years, there had been a distinct change in marketing because everybody used to come in June and so there was this it was a trying to even people out through the season and it's really hard so there was quite a campaign saying you know September's lovely here and of course suddenly everybody moves from June to September so you suddenly left with a sort of empty bit at the beginning it, it's really hard but that was why it was done then and, and it's still important today you know, it does just fill that little gap between. Um, and I think it's, it's also, there's a programme throughout the country of festivals. And I had um, two lovely ladies from India who owned a bookshop in Delhi, or no, it's not um, 
Delhi anymore, is it? Um, and they came here and they went to three or four while they were here. So they must have had a wonderful time meeting all these different people and seeing all those different authors. They were absolutely overjoyed with it all. So it's an opportunity to come down um, to the beautiful part of the world before the school holiday crowds yes, um, yes, and, and to enjoy yes. some arts and literature and, yeah. and festivities. And it's important for the businesses in the town because um, I think more and more people are looking for something to do while they're on holiday. It's not just that you go and stay in a hotel and you do your own thing. It is about uh, doing something cultural sometimes or it might be sporty other times. But it actually fits with that generation, doesn't it? And um, you, I saw on the website that there were issues around funding and you were looking at crowdfunding. So what can people do to help if they want to support the Foy Festival? We have. Thank you very much for asking that. That's, that's a really kind question. We actually have on our website, foyfestival.com, a link to our Virgin Money uh, donation page. So they can donate there. They the other ways they can help us is by becoming a friend of Foy Festival. They can also do that on the website. Or if they're a business, they might like to consider sponsoring us or advertising in our programme. So there are several ways in which uh, we would like uh, them to donate their money to us. Uh, but that would help uh, tremendously at the moment. Fantastic. And so hopefully there'll be some pop-up events um, over the course of the winter, we hope, fingers yes. crossed, um, and that the May 2021 festival will, will go ahead. Yes, that is all in the planning at the moment. We're working hard on that. At, well, I think we're going to have a little break because it's um, it's been quite an intense few months. Shall we, shan't we, shall we, shan't we? You know? <laughs> Will we be able to? Will we not be able to? So um, I think we shall have a few weeks break. We should be back in September and it will be all systems go to actually make some winter events and to make um, next year a real celebration, not just of Daphne and the festival, but for Foy and the general area as well, because it's important because lots of our visitors stay in Tolruan, they stay in Loswithiel. Some of them stay further away, as far away as Newquay. You know, so it does help the whole area. Wonderful. And so for people who want to um, get updates or, or to get news of the festival, again, where, where should they go? Certainly to our website, foyfestival.com. We also have a Facebook page and uh, we're on Twitter as well. So all the details are on the Foy Festival website. Wonderful. Lynn Gould, Chair of the Foy Festival, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. My creative conversation today was with Lynn Gould, chair of the Foy Festival. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page, and you can go there using the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly bit forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. Or you can go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to Creative Conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast, please share it with your friends wherever you share stuff. Or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify. You can find it by searching for my name on Spotify, Yang Mei Ui, and I'll spell that for you, Yang Mei, Y-A-N-G hyphen M-A-Y, Ui, O-O-I. 
all this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening and see you next time.